0: Two horrific murders in the Wollongong area shocked the community. When everyone began feeling safe again with the killer in custody, a similar murder occurred. Was it a copycat or was someone giving orders from behind bars? I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back if you've been here before. Don't forget that I also have videos up on YouTube, true crime cases that aren't things I cover here and what I cover here isn't what I cover there. So if you want more content, head over to YouTube. I'm also having other true crime podcasters on my live streams once or twice a month. So if you go over now, you can watch the one I just did with Aaron from The Generation Y We talked about podcasting and the Alonzo Brooks case, and also the conversation talked a little bit about the developments in the Delphi case. Soon, I'm going to have Nina from Already Gone on, and we are going to ask her questions about true crime and podcasting, what cases she wants to see solved, have her tell us about some cases she's interested in. So, again, that's on YouTube. Go check it out. Go subscribe so that you know when I go live and when I post. New videos, which is generally twice a week. I don't know if any of us are ready to jump into this case this week, but we're going to do it anyway. I found it when I was looking up information on a listener suggestion for a different Australian case where the victim's first name is Belinda. This case ended up popping up because of location and name. And before I knew it, I was way too far down the rabbit hole do not cover it. And the main reason I ended up down a rabbit hole with this case is that every article I read left me saying, wait, what? And it took a bit to untangle this. This is the case of the Van Crevel family. Accusations of abuse and multiple graphic murders give this episode just a very general listener discretion warning. Let's start with 59-year-old David O'Hearn of Albion Park, New South Wales, which is in the Wollongong metropolitan area. He was a shopkeeper, and on June 13, 1998, he didn't show up to open his store. In the few years that he ran the store, David always opened by 7 a.m., when his employee showed up and David wasn't there, he called David's sister, Patricia, to see what was going on. Patricia had no idea why David hadn't shown up to work, so she went over to his house to check on him. What she found was horrifying. I really don't know how much of the scene she saw or she processed before she called for help, and I truly hope from the depth of my being that she didn't see much. The police responded to the call and found David's body decapitated, missing a hand, partially disemboweled, and mutilated. He had been killed the night before on the 12th. David's head was found in the kitchen sink and it had obvious blunt force trauma. His hand that had been severed was found on the couch. Small mercies here, but the dismemberment was after death. The blows to his head would have been fatal. Based on the blood spatter, David was on the ground for almost the entirety of the attack, so he may have been unconscious from the first blow. On the wall, painted in the victim's blood, was a pentagram, an inverted crucifix, and above the pentagram was the word Satan written out. The word Satan was also written on a mirror above a side table. Near the body on the floor were knives, a razor, and a small saw. They all had blood on them, and matching knives and tools were found in the home, in the kitchen. The killer did not bring these things With them, they used what they found at the scene. The tools were from a cabinet that was above the refrigerator. To even see into that area, you would have to be at least six feet tall or taller. So they did believe that was the height of the killer. Also in the kitchen next to the sink was a pair of fingerless exercise gloves. They were still damp and inside out. They did not appear to be David's. The investigation showed that David had closed his shop at 5 p.m. and then he went to the grocery store. He actually bumped into someone he knew there, had a little conversation, mentioned he was going to have lunch with his mom the next day, and David would have then driven home and his car was found parked in his garage, but the groceries were still in the trunk. He didn't have time to put them away. So the authorities assumed David was interrupted by the killer shortly after arriving home. When and why would he have had exercise gloves on during any of this? And if they were from the morning before he went to work, Surely, they would have been dry over 24 hours later when the police arrived. They believed the killer wore them, and he got them wet when he washed blood off of his hands. And since they were fingerless gloves, there was a good chance the killer left Prince behind, and he did. A heavy crystal wine decanter had blood on it, and it was suspected of being the initial murder weapon, the thing the killer used to strike David down. The decanter and the lid were tested for prints, and one fingerprint was found on the lid. The authorities ran it through the database and didn't get any hits, meaning the person hadn't been charged or convicted for anything. It seemed so bizarre that a quiet, introverted man who lived alone, like David did, would be subjected to such a violent death. He had absolutely no known enemies, and the only real clue to motive was that this may have been a hate crime. David was gay, but he wasn't open about it. Investigators found evidence in his past of maybe three relationships during his adult years, and even those close to him didn't know he was gay. So even as a hate crime, this seemed unlikely because someone would have had to have known he was gay. Robbery was a possibility because some small but valuable items were taken, and the drawers were ransacked. But the death seemed far too violent for that. If David interrupted a robbery when he came home, why would a robber then dismember him and mutilate his body? There was also no forced entry either. It's always possible David forgot to lock his door, but the investigators lean towards this being someone David opened the door for. And because he was attacked from behind, it would have been someone that he felt safe enough to turn his back on. Not necessarily someone he knew, but someone he didn't perceive as a threat. Because of the satanic imagery left on the walls, the investigators asked around about anyone in the area who was interested in that sort of thing, and a bunch of people pointed the finger down the road towards a man named Keith Schreiber. When the police went to Keith's house to talk to him, he wasn't there, but his friend Mark was. Mark lived in the home, sort of. He was kind of a couch surfer, but at the time, that is where he was staying. The investigators asked Mark if they could look around, and he said yes. In Keith's room, the police were shocked to find drawings that were eerily similar to the crime scene. Some of it was honestly just generic satanic imagery, but some of it was more graphic and more on the nose. Things like pictures of bodies that were disemboweled and decapitated, like David had been. We're not talking Church of Satan or Satanic Bible-style Satanism. This is more like violent horror movie-style Satanism. Even more than that, Keith worked at the fish market, and his job was to fillet the fish, so he was used to working with knives. The police tracked Keith down to talk to him, and he denied any involvement. He denied knowing anything about the murder or about David and he gave an alibi, which was backed up by his boss. They had to be at the Sydney Fish Market early the next morning, the day after the murder, so Keith had slept at his boss's house that night so they could just pack up and leave first thing. It didn't seem likely that Keith had snuck out of his boss's house, traveled back to his own neighborhood to attack and kill David Hearn, and then got back, cleaned up, and ready to go in time to leave for Sydney. It just didn't look like Keith did this, even though he had those drawings in his room. Then on June 26th, 1998, another man was brutally murdered in his home. This was Frank Arkell, the 62-year-old former mayor of Wollongong. Frank's body was found when a friend stopped by to drop some things off at his home. Like David, Frank had been bashed in the head. This time, it was with a lamp, and the cord of the lamp was wrapped around his neck. Frank had put up a fight, but his body had not been dismembered the way David's had been. But the overkill was still at play. And then after death, the killer stuck a few of Frank's own tie pins into his face. Unlike David, Frank Arkell was not a quiet person who kept to himself. Well, he kept to himself shortly before his death due to a massive scandal and major legal issues, but before that, he was an incredibly popular politician. He had been the mayor of Wollongong, he had been a member of state parliament. His policies to improve the city made him popular enough that he was called Mr. Wollongong but that was before the scandal. And the scandal was worse than a scandal. It became public that Frank was being investigated for child sex offenses against many boys. Not just that, but he was implicated in being part of a pedophile ring, an organized system of abusers. He had already been out of office when this came out, and his fall from grace was as rapid as it was steep. Frank denied the accusations, but essentially had to go into hiding in his home while he waited for this to go through the legal system. Charges were brought against him. The trial on four charges was scheduled for September, three months after his murder, but the accusations were for many more instances than just those four that were being brought to trial. Frank dealt with verbal harassment anytime he went into public. There was graffiti on his property and even hiding in his home, he got a lot of prank phone calls. Some of the calls were harassing, some were threatening. But there hadn't been any physical attacks on him until now. And this attack left at least 40 separate injuries on Frank Arkell's body. This was a massive attack. Like David's crime scene, it appeared the killer used whatever was on hand. The lamp used and the tie pins were Frank's. The tie pins specifically were kept in a box that was found in Frank's closet. The police dusted the box for prints, assuming the killer had to handle it to get the pins out, and they found one print on the box that was not Frank Arkell's. The print did not match the one at David O'Hearn's crime scene, but that didn't mean they weren't from the same person. It could have been a different finger. It also could have been a different part of the same finger if he handled the decanter lid differently than he handled the box. It's not like we go around rolling our fingers on things when we grab stuff so that we leave full fingerprints everywhere. Partial prints are way more common. Than full prints. Also, at Frank Arkel's scene were a pair of black Nike track pants turned inside out and a pair of blood soaked boots from the brand Colorado. The track pants weren't a style Frank was known to wear, and the boots were the wrong size. The police believed the killer had taken them off at the scene to avoid leaving in bloody clothing. But walking around without pants on would cause just as much suspicion as bloody pants would have, and the investigators did determine a pair of Frank's pants were missing. It was fairly easy to spot because the missing pants were sweatpants that had a matching top. The top was there, but the pants weren't, and this was confirmed by Frank's house cleaner. This clothing is going to come back later, so keep it in the back of your mind. But at the beginning, they were not sure how important these clothes were going to be, and they were still trying to determine if David O'Hearn's murder was linked to Frank Arkell's. The investigators tried to find a tie between David and Frank in life, and they started with the people who made accusations against Frank, those who said he was part of a child abuse sex ring, and all of them were cleared from involvement eventually, and none of them who knew Frank knew who David O'Hearn was, and David's family and friends were not aware of any association he would have had with Frank. That didn't stop some media outlets from reporting that it was believed David and Frank were part of the same child sex abuse ring, The investigator said in a Forensic Investigator's episode on this case that they never found any evidence of that. Not a hint, not a whisper. There were no accusations ever made against David. And they dug through every detail of his life. If it was there, they would have found it. It sounds to me like some reporters tried to read between the lines, except there was nothing there to read. Not only was David's family dealing with his death and the truly gruesome details, they had to hear these absolute lies being reported. David and Frank had no connection to each other, but the investigators still believed the murders may have been linked, even in motive, because there is one thing that they had in common, even though they didn't know each other, and that was that they were both gay. So the investigators brought in their scope to look at other murders of gay men in the area, and a search on this found a similar murder in Sydney. Six months before the David and Frank murders, Trevor Parkin was killed in his home. He had also been smashed in the head, this time with a bowling pin, and he was partially dismembered. The crime scene was, frankly, pretty similar to David O'Hearn's. And Trevor had been convicted of child sexual abuse charges. Now, while Frank Kell hadn't been convicted, that may be linking the cases by motive. There was a distance between the crimes here. David and Frank lived near each other, making investigators believe the killer was local. But Trevor was killed in his home over an hour and a half north. There was a whole handprint found at the scene of Trevor Parkin's murder, and it didn't match either of the prints found at the Wollongong crime scenes. However, it was such a similar murder, so similar. And some items stolen from Trevor's apartment were found at the train station, and it was the train station you would be at if you were taking the train down to Wollongong, so maybe, for lack of better phrasing, the killer commuted to Sydney. There was enough to suspect the cases may be linked, but not enough to say definitively. So the three murder investigations were worked on separately, but with communication between the investigators. It turned out that two of the cases were linked, one was not, and what would crack the case was the clothing left behind by the killer. Those Nike pants were too generic and mass-produced to track down the sale. The boots were a popular brand and style, but with more limited distribution. Using the batch number, they were able to narrow down the store, where they were likely sold at. The shop had sold multiple pairs, but only six people used credit cards, meaning only six people could be tracked down. All six of them still had their boots. The investigator said that when they knocked on a couple of those doors, the people were actually wearing the boots at the time. It was likely a cash purchase and this put them back at square one. So the investigators decided to go public with the clothing. On the news and through Crime Stoppers, they broadcast the boots and the pants and asked people to call in if they recognized the items, and someone did. A woman called saying that her ex-boyfriend had the same pants and boots and he wore them regularly, until some point in June when he stopped wearing them. She even asked him about those items because he wore them so often and then suddenly they were gone the boyfriend's response seemed overblown. He avoided giving a straight answer and seemed angry that she had even asked, which isn't usually the response someone gives to why they got rid of an article of clothing. She also said the boyfriend followed the murders of David O'Hearn and Frank Arkell very closely in the papers. She gave her ex's name as Mark Van Crevel. Mark had actually been interviewed already in the case. He was the same Mark who had been living with his friend, Keith Schreiber, an early person of interest in the David O'Hearn murder. He's the one who let the police in the house to search, and he had gone to the police station to give a formal statement at that time. Keith had been cleared because he had an airtight alibi when David was killed, but Mark hadn't really even been looked into. Owning similar clothes, as were found at a crime scene, wouldn't be enough for an arrest. But if he was the killer, Mark was a danger to the public. He may have killed one person, but he may have killed three. So authorities surveilled Mark closely while they kept working on the investigation. One thing they could do was compare Mark's fingerprints to what was left behind at the various crime scenes and they might not have to ask Mark for the prints, which would then tip him off to the investigation looking at him. When Mark gave his statement, when he was interviewed after David's murder in relation to his friend Keith, they had the statement written up and handed it to him to sign. People often use one hand to hold the paper still on the table while they're signing, so they went back to the investigation files and pulled the statement. They fingerprinted it and managed to get nearly a complete set. After comparing the prints, they determined that they matched the prints left on the lid of the decanter at David O'Hearn's house and the box of tie pins at Frank Arkell's. They did not, however, match the handprint at Trevor Parkin's apartment. But to confirm, they wanted to get another set of prints, and the officers surveilling Mark saw him discard, it was a soda can or a soda bottle in a public trash can. So they retrieved it and had it processed. The prints again matched. At this point, they're starting to get everything together to make an arrest. Not for Trevor Parkins' murder, but for the other two. And then on September 30th, 1998, as they're working on this, 19-year-old Mark Van Crevel, who had recently changed his last name to Valera, showed up at the police station with his taekwondo instructor, and he confessed, not to Trevor's murder, but to the other two, that the police were about to arrest him for. It's not clear why Mark decided to confess to his taekwondo instructor, who then talked him into going to the police. It doesn't seem like Mark was aware that they were closing in on him. Mark claimed he came forward because he had to get it off of his chest, he was feeling guilty, but the way he talked about the crimes in his recorded confession was so emotionless and detached at times that it was so hard to imagine that feelings were involved at all, but it really is the only explanation offered. Not only did Mark go to the police and give a statement at the police station, he also went with them to the crime scenes to give all the details they could ever want. Mark said that in the case of David O'Hearn, he actually had no idea who he was. He didn't know David was gay. He said he was simply angry and made up his mind to kill someone that day. Asked what he was angry about, Mark just said, stress. He wasn't very specific. Mark said he had passed David while he was out in his yard and decided that is who he would kill. Mark approached David around 6 p.m. under the pretense of wanting to know if there were any rooming houses in the area he could rent. David's sister has said that David was a very giving person, letting people have credit at his store when they were in need. So it wouldn't surprise her that he would have tried to help Mark under this ruse. Here was Mark claiming to be a teenager who was homeless and needing somewhere to stay. David invited Mark inside to talk about the area and what options he had for housing. Mark said he sat down on the couch and David offered him something to drink. When David got up and turned his back to Mark to go get that drink, Mark attacked. He grabbed the wine decanter and hit David from behind. He continued to beat David in the head until he was sure he was dead. Then Mark looked around for things to steal. He spent 30 minutes in the house looking for things to take and also to continue the attack on David's dead body. Mark said he made the satanic marks on the walls using David's hand as a paintbrush. Then he left the hand on the couch. The reason David's head was in the sink was that Mark considered cleaning it and keeping it as a trophy. Mark's information matched the evidence and it matched things not in the media. Like Mark knew exactly where the various satanic imagery was on the walls, not just the general idea that it was there. As Mark was talking, there were a few points where he took some deep breaths, like he was trying to compose himself a bit, and that was the closest to emotion he showed. So much of this was completely detached. Mark then gave a detailed confession for Frank Arkell's murder, and it was just as detailed and backed up by the evidence as the other confession but Mark said he actually targeted Frank specifically due to the charges against him. Mark and his friends were even behind some of the harassing and threatening phone calls Frank had gotten. Mark said that on the day of the murder, he called Frank and said he was a homeless gay teen and would like to meet up with him, and Frank invited him over. Though Frank had inherited his parents' house, he didn't live in it. He preferred living in, in the granny flat that was on the property. And a granny flat is what I would call an in-law suite, basically a small self-contained living space. When Mark arrived at the granny flat, he said Frank was making the bed. The two talked for a little bit, and when Frank turned his back on Mark to go use the bathroom, Mark attacked. He first shoved Frank up against a wall and then hit him with a lamp. Mark then used the cord from the lamp and tried to strangle Frank while also he continued to hit him. After Frank was dead, the attack continued. Then he found the tie pins while he was looking around the place and he stuck them into Frank's face after death. Mark had a similarly calm retelling of these events, getting a little riled when he talked about what Frank Arkell had been accused of doing. At one point, he even cursed about it, but then he apologized for his language. It was just really odd to listen to him apologize for swearing and then get back to describing a horrific murder. He certainly did not sound sorry for it. Mark's motive for killing Frank was because he felt Frank was a danger to children, and his motive for David O'Hearn's murder was just general anger at the world, I guess. Mark did mention having been physically abused by his father to the police at this point. That is why he changed his last name to Valera to further get away from his father. So that was possibly the source of some of his anger. So let's go ahead and talk about the Van Crevel family and Mark's father. So Mark was the older of two children. His younger sister Belinda was just a year younger than him. Their mother left when Belinda was two and Mark was three, leaving their father Jack to raise them on his own. Their mother left left. They didn't see her much, if at all, for more than 15 years. Mark and Belinda, as teenagers and young adults, leveled accusations of childhood physical abuse against Jack. According to Belinda, she believed Jack was a sadist because of how frequent the abuse was. She said even as a child, she believed her father might kill her one day, and she said she didn't even get it as bad as Mark did. As Belinda and Mark Van Crevel became teens, they started rebelling. They resented Jack, and they were growing too big for him to control the way he had done when they were little. Mark became friends with his classmate, Keith Schreiber, who Jack did not approve of. Mark and Keith got into trouble together. They were the class bullies. And not only were they physical bullies, they also liked to freak people out with their talk of death and Satanism. They would talk about ways to torture people to the brink of death without actually killing them. Keith claimed he had actually killed two people. One was an infant and one was someone he pushed off a train. Both of those stories appear to be entirely made up. Behind the scenes, though, it turned out Mark wasn't all talk, the way Keith seemed to be. Mark read up on serial killers, MOs, graphic crime scenes, and information about how to dismember a body. I know that we've all joked before about how the police shouldn't look at our search history, our bookshelves, or they're gonna haul us all away. But Mark was obsessed not with learning about serial killers, not about reading about forensics or psychology or criminal justice the way the rest of us are interested in true crime. He was obsessed with how to be a serial killer. When Mark was old enough, he moved out of his father's house, Belinda still lived at home with her daughter, who she had as a young single mother. When Mark moved out, he did not have the usual things you need to support yourself like a steady job, so he mostly bounced between places to stay rather than moving in anywhere stable. At the time of the two murders, Mark was living with Keith, but at the time he was arrested, he was staying at a youth hostel. The police executed search warrants at the hostel and at Mark's father's house, where he still kept a bedroom. At the hostel, they found a gold chain that belonged to David O'Hearn, and at his father's house, they found Frank Arkell's pants that Mark had changed into at the scene. So in case they needed more evidence to link Mark to the crimes, here they have it. They also found a Harold Schechter book called the A to Z Encyclopedia of Serial Killers. The book belongs to a large number of non-serial killers, and I'm sure someone listening right now has this book, but what makes Mark's book notable is what he wrote on the inside. In the front cover, it says, Who will be my number three? David John O'Hearn, Frank Arkell the first. Who else? One is the best. You always remember your first. Who's next? He also wrote, quote, My list. Special numbers are only thought of. Who will be my number three? The possibilities are endless, including... And then Mark listed a bunch of names, including his father and his sister. Mark did write references to who will be his number three on a few pages, and there was no mention of Trevor Parkin anywhere. That's not to say they didn't investigate Mark for it. They had found a matchbook from Planet Hollywood in Trevor's apartment, and Mark had worked at one point as a dishwasher at the Planet Hollywood in Sydney. It seemed like a possible link between them, but nothing else put Mark at the scene. Another young man would later be arrested and convicted in that case. Though Mark's writings do show he was trying to figure out who to kill next, Mark didn't make it to his number three, and he was going to stand trial for just the two murders he confessed to. And being that, Mark confessed. His prints were at both scenes. Stolen items from the homes were found in his belongings, and because he was actually guilty, his defense options were limited. Mark tried to enter a plea of guilty to manslaughter, not murder. Mark claimed provocation through a gay panic defense and also diminished capacity due to childhood sexual abuse he claimed was at the hands of his father. Mark's news story was that both of the victims propositioned him, and he lost control because it triggered flashbacks of sexual abuse he had suffered. This was the first time Mark had ever mentioned either of these things. Even his attorney didn't hear about it until several weeks before trial. Mark had previously told the police about physical abuse, but never mentioned sexual abuse. His sister was asked about it, and though she wasn't aware of it before this, Belinda said she believed Mark 100%. The prosecution did not and rejected his guilty plea to manslaughter as a resolution to this case. They proceeded with the murder charges against him. At the 2000 trial, the videotaped confessions were played for the jury. They saw Mark calmly explain how he killed two men, including walking through David's house and pointing out details. On the tape, he said he had no reason to kill David and didn't mention David propositioning him. He also didn't mention prior sexual abuse at all, and he specifically said he didn't know David was gay which he would have known had David propositioned him. He also, on this tape, claimed he only knew Frank Arkell by reputation, but then Mark said at trial that he and Frank had a one-year-long relationship. He never mentioned it before, according to him, because he was ashamed of it. Mark said that over the year he was in this relationship with Frank They had sexual encounters about eight times, but they never had sex. He killed Frank when Frank wanted more. Mark also testified about the sexual abuse from his father. He said it started when he was around seven and lasted until he was 17. Shortly after that was when he supposedly met Frank Arkell, something he could provide no proof of. Mark also testified that he went to David O'Hearn's house twice, actually, and it was the second time when David propositioned him. He said that David even put on a porn film for the two of them to watch so they could get in the mood. Fortunately, the police who processed the scene actually checked the video player and documented what was in there. There was a tape that was a documentary about Queen Elizabeth. Another issue with Mark's new story was that he claimed David pulled his pants down when he asked Mark for sex. David's body was found with the pants pulled down. However, the blood evidence showed they were up when the attack happened. They were pulled down after. Mark did not hold up well under cross-examination when he was confronted with these inconsistencies. Jack Van Crevel also testified at trial. During his testimony, Mark crouched down so he couldn't see Jack and Jack couldn't see him. And during the testimony, Mark was audibly crying as Jack admitted to physical abuse. I'm going to interject here and say a lot of people do not believe Jack abused his children. A couple who babysat the kids said they never saw any bruises on them they didn't see the kids cower or act afraid of Jack. Based on what Mark and Belinda said happened to them in childhood, this couple said you would have expected them to be black and blue regularly, and they just weren't. But on the stand, Jack admitted to kicking, punching, and even putting an unloaded gun to Mark's head when he was little. Like seven years old little. Some friends and family have said Jack lied on the stand. He claimed these things happened to try to help Mark's defense, to try to provide some mitigating circumstances for the judge and jury. They saw this as an extension of what Jack always did for his kids, which was doing whatever needed to be done. When Mark struggled in school, Jack hired a tutor. When the kids needed more time with him, he cut back his work hours to be home after school. He took a parenting course when they became teens. When they had an interest, he made sure they had what they needed for it, and that included expensive hobbies like motocross. When Belinda had her daughter as a teenager, Jack supported her and his granddaughter financially. But we don't know what goes on in someone's home, even when someone looks like Superdad from the outside. We have Jack on the stand under oath, admitting to the abuse. And we have his two kids who both said it happened. There were three people in that house, and every single one of them agree there was physical abuse. And to really help Mark's defense, Jack would have to admit to the sexual abuse. That was the defense, and he adamantly denied that. And oddly enough, admitting to being physically abusive actually helped Jack's credibility. We talked about this in regards to credibility in the Colin Davis case. I do recommend going back to listen to that episode if you haven't, because it's honestly one of my best episodes. But the basics are that Colin Davis's ex-wife was unwilling to admit to the less favorable things in her past, things that were more or less provably true. It gave the jury a reason to question her honesty with everything else. And it's the same thing except reverse in this case. Jack admitted to truly horrible things. He said he put a gun to a seven-year-old's head. He said, I did all of these awful things, but I didn't do that. And that came across as credible under these circumstances. To drive it home, the Crown called an expert who interviewed Mark and found inconsistencies in Mark's story, in his accusations against his father in regards to the sexual abuse. The expert said he didn't believe Mark's claims, and he believed the story was made up, not his words, my words, as a Hail Mary, to have a chance at getting a shorter prison term. The jury ended up finding Mark guilty of murder in both cases. When the judge sentenced him, he also rejected the claims of sexual abuse, and he rejected the idea that David and Frank propositioned Mark, and that caused a justified loss of control. While I do agree with the judge that it didn't happen, Mark was not propositioned, it still makes me tense up when I see that the judge didn't denounce the gay panic defense, he just said it didn't apply. In Australia, it was called the Homosexual Advance Defense. It was established the same way it was established here in the U.S., through case law. Basically, people claimed it as provocation, and it worked, so it became a valid defense. Three years after Mark's trial, Tasmania was the first place in Australia to actually say, no, this is not a defense. As of a few months ago, all jurisdictions in Australia had more or less banned it. Queensland does allow it, but only with magistrate permission under exceptional circumstances. By the way, it is still a defense in U.S. federal courts and in roughly 75% of our states. So when we look at Mark Valera's case in the context of 2000 Australia, it isn't surprising that the judge didn't say, even if they propositioned you, you weren't justified in murdering them. Because according to case law, he would have been justified. Not now, not in 2021, but in 2000, the law was on his side and the judge just didn't believe he had been propositioned. 21-year-old Mark Valera was sentenced to two consecutive life sentences and the judge ordered that he never be released. Mark was found guilty in August 2000 and then sentenced in December of 2000, but before the sentencing... Someone on Mark's hit list was killed. On August 8th, thousand, ten 10 days after the guilty verdict, Belinda Van Crevel showed up at the police station in the overnight hours to report an attack at her house. She said that she and her toddler daughter were in bed when she heard some noises outside of her room. She and the little one hid under the covers until things were quiet. Belinda then opened her bedroom door. And saw blood in the hallway. She got her daughter into the car and drove to the police station. Officers accompanied Belinda back to the house and went inside while she waited outside. When they came out, she asked them if he was dead, meaning her father, Jack, and they told her he had been killed in the home. 48-year-old Jack Van Crevel's body was found in his bedroom partly on the floor, but with his upper body lying on the bed. He had severe trauma to the back of his head. At the foot of the bed was a hatchet, a fire poker, and a knife. The poker was one of a matching set in the house, and the knife matched ones that were in the kitchen. The hatchet was generic enough that it couldn't be said for sure that it came from the home, but the family did have one. But still, this just seemed very similar to the murders Mark had carried out, except Mark was in jail. The investigators were able to follow bloody footprints from Jack's bedroom down the hall to the lounge room where the poker was, and then back to the bedroom as though the killer left during the attack to go get another weapon. Again, a prolonged attack with overkill, still looking like the crimes Mark had committed. There were also bloodstains in Belinda's daughter's room near a window that had the screen missing. It looked like that was how the killer got in and out of the home. The daughter was not sleeping in there at the time, but rather had spent the night in Belinda's room, and, well, that seemed pretty conveniently fortunate. Belinda was interviewed at the police station. She gave a longer version of what happened, saying that the noises woke her up, She tried to keep her daughter quiet in bed, and then she heard her bedroom door open. She thought at that moment that they were dead, but then the door closed again. There were blood smears on the door handle, which did confirm what Belinda said happened. She said she waited until the noises stopped for a while, but then she got too scared to stay in the house. She was worried that her father had been hurt, particularly when she saw the blood, but She just had it in her mind that she had to get her daughter out of the house. The investigators asked Belinda who she thought could have been responsible, and she said she didn't know. She said she thought Mark was in enough trouble and didn't want to get him into more trouble, but this seemed connected somehow to her. Maybe Mark knew who did it or had them do it for him, possibly in exchange for something. They asked her who Mark might ask to do something like that. Belinda said she would say Keith Schreiber, Mark's best friend, but Mark had told her that Keith was gutless, so he wouldn't have asked him. But the investigators wanted to speak with Keith. Belinda said she had last seen him the day of the murder, so several hours before the overnight murder occurred. She and Keith had gone to the jail to visit Mark but she wasn't able to see him because they hadn't made an appointment ahead of time and they were turned away. They then hung out for a few hours before Belinda went home. Keith was homeless at the time, so Belinda didn't know where the authorities could find him. They ended up getting a tip that Keith was at the train station, so they quickly went out there and brought him in for questioning, in which Keith pretty much immediately confessed. They basically said, do you know what happened to Jack? And he said, I did it. His voice did crack as he said it. He said Jack had to pay for what he had done to Mark, and he also made comments referencing Belinda's little girl and protecting her from Jack. Keith was more emotional and agitated than Mark had been during his confessions, But one thing that was similar was they took Keith to the house to walk them through what happened while they recorded what he said. He said that he climbed in the bedroom window shortly after midnight, which was already cracked a little. He had grabbed the hatchet from outside on his way in. He went to Jack's room where Jack was sleeping, and he accidentally bumped into the nightstand. This noise startled Jack awake, And Keith attacked, yelling, this is for Mark, and calling Jack a pedophile. Keith said that after the attack, he opened and closed Belinda's door, but didn't give a real reason for this, just vaguely said he was checking on them. Keith was asked where he found the weapons, and he pointed out where he got the hatchet, and he pointed out where he got the poker, but those were things that were in plain sight the many times Keith had been at the house. When Keith was in the kitchen, to show them where he got the knife, suddenly he couldn't remember. He opened a drawer, but when he didn't see any knives, he looked confused. He opened another drawer, and then another. No knives. He knew every detail of the crime, except this one. The police suspected he was lying about where he got the knife, which seemed like such an odd detail to lie about. The only thing they could figure was that the knife was not in a drawer but it was either given to him in advance or it was a left out for him on purpose, and Keith was covering for that person by acting like he got it on his own. The only other adult in the house was Belinda. And frankly, the investigators already didn't think her story completely added up. For one, Belinda had a mobile phone near her bed. She didn't use it to call the police either during or after the alarming noises she heard. She didn't flee with her daughter to a neighbor's house to use their phone. She didn't go to the police station that was five minutes from her house. She went to the one that was 15 minutes away. All of this delayed emergency services from reaching Jack as quickly as possible. Almost like it was her goal not to have them get there too quickly. In talking to Keith, the investigators asked him outright if Belinda told him to kill Jack. And all he said initially was that he knew Belinda wanted it done. Then he said she did ask him to kill Jack, but he didn't know if she was serious. Keith was just simply not going to draw a direct line from Belinda to the murder for the investigators. He was going to dance around it. They were going to have to keep investigating, and one person they talked to was Elizabeth, Mark and Belinda's mother. She had reentered their lives after Mark's arrest. When he was convicted, she was caught on camera leaving the courthouse, crying and sobbing and saying what sounded to me like, I'll get you, Jack. But when they talked to Elizabeth, she said she didn't, in fact, get Jack. If anything, she tried to save him after Belinda told her that she offered Keith Schreiber $2,000 to kill Jack. Elizabeth told the police that Belinda and Keith were in a sexual relationship and that three days before the murder, she called Jack to warn him about what Belinda said. She told him he needed to go to the police, but Jack didn't. So the police could now tie Belinda to the crime, but only with one witness. They were able to resolve the case against Keith pretty easily because he pleaded guilty, But they were going to have to spend a little bit more time building a stronger case against Belinda. A friend of Jack's came forward with another piece to the puzzle. He said that after Mark's conviction, Jack was going to change his will. He was going to disinherit Mark and also Belinda because he believed she would just blow the whole inheritance on drugs. He wanted everything to go directly to his granddaughter for her future. About a week after that conversation, before he could change the will, Jack was dead. Mark and Belinda inherited Jack's estate, which was valued at nearly $300,000, and Mark had little use for the money and assets from behind bars. This seemed like a motive, and if Belinda truly believed Jack had molested Mark, there was a motive there as well. And on top of that, Belinda claimed she believed her father had started abusing her daughter. Like Mark's claims, these accusations came up down the road. Leading up to Mark's trial, Belinda never mentioned any suspicion Jack was doing anything to her daughter. She didn't even mention it to Mark's defense team, which would have actually helped him out. She didn't call child services or the police to report it. She didn't make any moves to protect her daughter before this, except she did tell Keith about her suspicions. And then he killed Jack. Whether Belinda really believed her daughter was being abused or if she just used it as a way to rile Keith up enough to kill Jack, Only Belinda knows that. Eight months after the murder, Belinda was brought in for another interview. The investigation had shown that Belinda wrote Keith love letters in prison and sent him money, money they believed was the payment for killing Jack. Money she initially denied she gave him until she was shown proof of it. And when confronted with putting money on the books of her father's killer, Her response was, yeah, and? Belinda told the police she was still friends with Keith, so it wasn't weird that she visited him and sent him money. She did deny she had any relationship with him, but after she was pushed on it a bit, she did admit that they had a sexual relationship, but not a dating relationship. The investigators theorized that Belinda manipulated Keith with promises of love and money to kill her father and justified it with the accusations of abuse against Mark and her daughter. Greed was motive, and so was hatred. From the time of Jack's death, Belinda denied any involvement. However, two years later, she did confess in exchange for a plea deal. A key witness had fallen through, so the prosecution was willing to compromise. Belinda admitted to orchestrating her father's murder in exchange for six years in prison. The authorities were never able to link Mark to the murder as someone giving instructions from inside. It seemed interesting, quite a coincidence, that Belinda and Keith tried to visit him in jail just hours before the murder, but no one has ever implicated him in having knowledge before the fact. Even when the authorities visited Mark in prison to ask him about it to see what he knew, he seemed really interested in the details as to how his father died, as though he didn't already know. In 2007, Belinda was released at the age of 26 and she has not stayed out of the headlines since then. After her release, there were some articles about how her daughter's paternal grandparents, who had custody, were afraid of Belinda. They said they were not going to allow any contact between the daughter, who was then 10 years old, and Belinda. Those reports helped fuel Belinda Van Crevel's media nickname of Belinda Van Evil. Belinda has also been arrested a number of times since her release, mostly for petty crimes, but in 2014, she was jailed for two years after she stabbed her boyfriend, a man named Marshall. Marshall said the attack came out of nowhere, and Belinda was calling him Jack while she did it. While he was in the hospital, Belinda actually called Marshall's father to ask where Marshall was, He told her Marshall was in the hospital because Belinda had stabbed him, and she claimed to have no memory of the event. While Marshall had told his father what had happened, he actually tried to lie at first. He told the authorities he had been mugged, and that is how he had been attacked. They didn't believe him. They executed a search warrant on his home, and that's when they found his blood. Belinda was arrested. It was alleged she attacked him after mixing pills with alcohol. She was given a two-year sentence in that attack. Belinda's latest criminal charge was nearly a year ago, stemming from a fight she got into with a friend. Belinda Van Crevel cannot jaywalk without it getting reported on. And I wish I had the time or, frankly, the brainpower right now to delve into why Belinda was the one in the family called Van Evil when it was her brother who killed two men because he felt like it. How she only thought her father was sexually abusive because her brother told her he was. She's not the one who made up that story. The darkest and most evil parts of this entire case go back to Mark, yet Belinda is the one dubbed Van Evil. I'm not going to paint Belinda as an angel, but I do think we need to question why the media is painting her to be almost worse than her serial killer brother. As for Keith Schreiber, he was initially paroled in August 2012 after his minimum 12-year non-parole period was up, but he didn't follow the conditions of his parole and ended up back inside, but he has since been released. Mark Valera, a.k.a. Mark Van Crevel, has appealed the severity of a sentence. He lost that appeal, and though his sister, who still believes in him, has advocated for his release, it looks unlikely that Mark will ever live outside of the prison walls.